0: Week four of Don't Be Afraid is Psalm 4. I'll read the text for us. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your own bed, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will lie down and sleep for you alone or oh O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is God's word. So this is the last week of don't be afraid. And just as a review, we've been working through the first three Psalms. Psalm one being the Psalm that teaches us how God, how God wants us to drive out fear by meditation on his word, by hearing his preaching and stopping the preaching of the world from overwhelming us and leading us to fear. And then we've taken that principle of meditation on God's word and applied it to two particularly timely situations. One of them being the fear of government and then the fear of damage to our bodies, particularly in the form of a pandemic. Uh, So for this last week, we're going to take on fear of the future of the church. Now, before we get into it, I want to encourage you. I hope some of you have been taking these words seriously and actually working on trying to meditate on God's word. Um, I've been trying to take my own advice a little bit and increase the amount of time I spend meditating on God's word and just in you know confession. I've been a little bit inconsistent with it. It's a hard, it's a hard task, but the times that I have done it, I, I have actually seen uh, that scripture drive out my fear. And so I hope you're taking time to do that. Uh, it is practice. They call this a spiritual discipline. That means it requires effort and it requires trying again and again to get good at it, but it is so valuable for us. So, the fear for the future of the church. Uh, let me share a couple statistics with you. These are all particularly Canadian statistics, too. Uh, between the years 1950 and the year 2000, uh, the amount of people who were regular churchgoers in Canada went from two out of every three to one out of every four. Between the years 1970 and 2020, The percentage of the population who would self-identify as not particularly religious went from 1% of the population to 25% of the population. And actually, some recent polling data that I saw says that number might even be higher. And here's one statistic that just blew my mind. Like I had to sit back and take a moment after reading this. Uh, the Anglican Church of Canada just released some statistics this year that said if their decline in numbers is consistent over the next couple of years, by the year 2040, there will be no Anglican Church of Canada. It'll be gone. No one in it. Startling stuff. Now, I know statistics, they, they need some nuance and they need a little bit of story, uh, but Just for the sake of today's study, we can say this. Statistically, Christianity in Canada is in a nosedive. But I don't think you needed me to give you statistics to know that. I think you've noticed over the last couple years or couple decades how it's become increasingly hard for Christians to talk about being Christian to even their family members sometimes. I looked at the roster of our congregation's membership and I found out uh, that 68% of our adult members are parents, which means that approximately 68% of you have realized that the world that your kids are growing up in is different than the world you grew up in. And that there are a lot of dark and scary things that they have access to that, well, maybe you never had access to growing up. I think many of us are worried about the future of Christianity in this country. What could it look like? As I looked at that same roster of members of our church, I found out that 10% of all of our members are under the age of six. This awesome blessing. But just think that out. When they're finishing maybe their degree in university, there may be no Anglican Church of Canada. and Who knows what other church bodies may have bit the dust in that time. The world that they're growing up in, the world that we are leaving for them, the nation that we love... Will it be a place that's safe for Christians to live in the coming decades? I think of it a lot like uh, like a large group gathering. One of the things I miss from being in a pandemic is large group gatherings, like sporting events or concerts, these sort of things. Maybe that's not your cup of tea, but if you've ever been in one of those groups and you've been trying to move across the group, like the group is going that way and you want to go that way, it's a hard thing, isn't it? like stopping and starting and bumping into people. And God forbid you have a child with you, you're like grabbing them by the wrist and pulling them through that crowd. I wonder if many, in many ways, that's how we feel as Christians in our nation right now. We know to go that way toward God. But as our nation continues to go ever more sideways, it becomes harder and harder to not get trampled by the culture. We fear losing our children in the crowd. I wonder if that's how David felt when he was writing Psalm 4. David starts Psalm 4 with these words, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He says, God, in the past you have been so gracious to me and you've answered my prayer, but I got another thing that's just really bugging me. It's on my heart. It's it's burning me up inside. And here's what he says: it is. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He says, God, as I look out at the world, I see people who turn the thing that is my honor, my glory, my worship, you, God, into something that I should feel shameful about. And I look out at the world and, and people are following vain words, words that mean nothing, and believing lies. In fact, seeking after those lies. I feel like I'm living completely counterculturally. And it's scary. Do you feel like that? I know I do. And so I need what David is going to tell us today. He's going to do what he did in the last two Psalms that we studied. He's going to say, Heart, I know how we feel, but this is what is true. Let's meditate this deep into our heart. David's going to give us three points today in the Psalm. He's going to say, Remember the church, trust the process, and expect a Godlike answer. So remember the church, trust the process, and expect a Godlike answer. First, remember the church. The first verse of the text that he wants to push into his heart, where he says, but heart, here's what we need to know, is to know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. David says, remember the church. Remember that God has set apart for himself those who are his. He watches out for them. He hears their prayers. When you hear statistics like the ones I listed, or maybe when you just sit in this room and look around at all the empty chairs, you start to wonder, what's the state of the church going to be next year, 10 years from now? It's easy to worry about those things, to see the numbers declining and to wonder. But, but what God would say is, remember the church. Remember those who are still here. Remember those who are still in these seats. It can be easy to worry about those who aren't here or who were here, but there are people who are right now here. And God would say, Remember them. Maybe you remember this story from the Old Testament. The prophet Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Prophets of Baal build an altar and they put a sacrifice on it. And Elijah builds an altar and puts a sacrifice on it. And the prophets of Baal pray to Baal to bring fire down on the altar, but nothing happens because of of course, Baal doesn't exist. But then Elijah prays to the true God and God gives an answer by fire that burns up not just the sacrifice, but the altar itself. But you know what happens after that story? Elijah goes on the run and goes into something that can really only be described as deep depression. In fact, he's crying out to God in prayer. And he says this, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. See what you maybe don't notice when you think about that story of the prophets of Baal and Elijah on Mount Carmel is what was happening around those altars. There was a crowd gathered there, but none of them were cheering for Elijah. There were multiple prophets of Baal, but there was only one prophet of the true God. And even after God sent the answer by fire, the people cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But Elijah knew it was just because of the miracle. And the next news that Elijah heard was that his life was in danger. And so he was on the run and he thought to himself, I'm the only one standing up for God here. He felt alone. Maybe sometimes that's how we feel as we see our, our numbers go down nationally as Christians, or maybe even in our congregation in attendance, you can say, are we going to end up all alone? We've been working so hard, so zealously. We put hours in. We're here to volunteer. We're encouraging each other. We're in life groups. We're praying for each other. We're working so hard for the church, but it seems like nothing is going right. You know what God says to Elijah? He says, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, whose mouths have not kissed them. He says, remember the church. It may feel lonely. It may feel like things are going downhill, but remember the church. Remember those who are here. And I think if we do that, we'll see something really cool happen. When you're a big church and you have a lot of people in your pews, it's easy to try to find the people who maybe have similar interests as you, or they come from a similar background as you, or they're in a similar station of life as you and to connect over those things. And that's great. But when you have a small church, you don't have as many options. And that leads to something I think is wonderfully beautiful, genuine selfless love. If you were one of the last two people on earth, like do a hypothetical apocalyptic moment for me, you're the one of the last two people on earth. You might not like the way that person cuts their hair or the way that they talk or the things that they value, but they're the only other person on earth. So you're going to have to get along. And we're obviously not the last two people left on earth, but as we get smaller, there may be people in this room or in our congregation who you would not have normally tried to befriend, but because they're here and because you remember the church and because you know that even though you may not like them, God loves them enough to die for them and call them into this congregation, you can show that same kind of genuine love for them it can motivate us to become a galvanized rock solid foundation of Christians in this congregation on which God can build a community of Christians. So remember the church, look at the people in this room and remember that God has chosen them just as he has chosen you and it puts you together, not by accident, but on purpose to love each other. God says, remember the church and then trust the process. The next verse is, uh, says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So God tells us to be angry. It's not something maybe you expected out of the Bible. And I think a lot of Christians believe they're never supposed to be angry. Being angry is a sin. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. The Apostle Paul will quote this verse actually in the New Testament. So we know it is still true for us. So what does David mean? David means that if you're looking out at the world and you see the decline in Christianity, or you just see a decline in your congregation or in your family of faith, that should bother you. It should give you an emotional reaction. In fact, I would ask you, if you're not bothered by the decline of Christianity in this country, you might need to check your heart. This should bother you, but, but David says, direct that anger, direct that frustration. Bring it into your own heart and pray it out to God, not out in the public arena. And I'll tell you, this is exactly the verse that I needed to hear this week. Because I wrote about half a sermon that I'm really glad God didn't let me preach to you. It was a sermon that was essentially scolding, a lot of asking us, do we actually care about the decline of Christianity in North America? And then I read this verse. God said, that's not your role. That's not your job. I'll tell you of the three things that we've studied, the government, uh, the fear of damage to my body and fear for the future of the church. This is the one that gets me. I'm not really afraid of the government. I think politics is interesting, but I'm not too worried about it. And I'm not really afraid of the coronavirus. I, I try to be safe and I try to help people as much as I can, but I'm not afraid of it. But this, this gets me. This makes me afraid. And my reaction was to let my fear, my anger boil out until God said, no, direct your anger in a different direction. To think about it, let it bother you, let it motivate you, but, but then to offer right sacrifices and to put your trust in the Lord. When we get riled up and we get fearful, when we get angry, we tend to make really rash decisions You know, this is true in in many uh, areas of your life, but it is especially true for the church. It seems to me that when churches get, well, sort of confronted with some of their weaknesses and some of their failures, they start to think, okay, what can we change? What can we make different? How can we do this new? God would say, hold up, slow down, trust the process. Offer right sacrifices. Keep preaching the word. Keep baptizing your babies. Keep feeding the Lord's Supper to your people. It is those things that make the church grow. It is those things that mark the church's presence. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do other things or shouldn't think of new ways to be active in our community. But those things need to be the centerpiece to offer right sacrifices. It may seem not all that impressive, but neither was Gideon's army. Neither was the promises that were made to Abraham and Noah and Sarah. They didn't seem like really logical things to do, but God worked through those things because they were his promises. And so God says, trust the process. I'm glad you're doing that right now. As you sit in this church, as you came to communion earlier this morning, you're trusting that process in the face of fear. God says, if you do, it will lead to trust in the Lord and peace as we move forward. So God says, trust the process. And then finally, he says to expect a God-like answer. And by God-like answer, I mean an answer that is, in, is fitting in with God's character. So David says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, Lord. Now, the first thing to notice about this verse is those first couple words. There are many who say. This is the same phrase that David used last Psalm, Psalm 3, to uh, mark out the people who were kind of criticizing his faith or leading him to doubt in his faith, right? He says, many are saying, right? So we know that this phrase, this prayer is, well, sort of sarcastic. Uh, David's saying, you know, there are people out there and they're saying this thing, but that's not right? How is that not right? How would it not be right to say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Well, it seems that David was criticizing those who would see the answer to his plea that false teaching and would uh, be rid of the church and that the church would grow. The answer or the, the prayer that people were asking is, Lord, make things work better. Fix these things. Show us some good. Show us some visible results so that we can know that things are okay. David says, that's not the prayer to to pray. But sometimes it is the prayer that we pray, right? God, we'll feel like a good church if you start bringing us more members. We'll feel like a good church if the offering plates are full and we're making budget. God says, that's not what to pray for. David actually prays, you have put more joy in my heart than when their wine and grain abound. In other words, he says, Even if, Lord, you were to give people visible prosperity in the church, I would have something far deeper, far more beautiful, far more certain than that. He says, in the face of a changing circumstance around me, I have a deep-seated joy, more joy than even when things are going really well. Now, David doesn't tell us what that joy is, but we can fill in the blank, can't we? Where is that joy? It's in Jesus. Even if the numbers were to continue to decline for the next couple decades, and it was just a couple of us gathered in a house together, fearing for our life because there had been people who had tried to take our lives from us for being Christians, we would have Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Well, when Simon Peter said of him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, his confession, my church will be built and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In other words, Jesus says, wherever there is the confession that he is the Messiah, hell hell cannot overcome it. Satan's armies cannot overcome the church, as the old hymn says, the church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end, though there be those that hate her and, and strive to see, see her fail against both foe and traitor, she ever will prevail. The church may not look like this, but it will prevail. The church may not be the church that we grew up with. But the church will never perish because our dear Lord is with us to the end to guide, sustain, and cherish us. So trust the process and remember the church that is gathered and God will give you a godlike answer. And so David finishes with these words. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. We talked last week about how David connects sleep with vulnerability and willingness to let God take care of things for him. And that's certainly in play here again, but the fourth century church father Augustine went a step further with this text. And he said, this is David thinking about his death. Then, in the same way, the new Testament talks about death as sleep for the Christians. David was thinking of his death as sleep. Someday I will die. I will fall asleep in Christ. I will wake someday when the resurrection comes, be reunited with my body and brought to the new heavens and new earth. But his point is this, as I look out at the world that hates God, that believes lies, that follows vain words and makes my glory into shame, I know that at the end of the day, I can't move the needle all that much on that. And So I can trust in an eternity where that will not be a problem. A place where there will be no opposition to the church. A place where we will not fear for our lives or for the future for our children. That is promised to you in Christ. The Lord alone makes you dwell in safety. That's what Noah knew. Remember we read about Noah in Hebrews? Noah was told to build a boat. A thing that didn't really look like it was making a whole lot of sense and maybe wasn't the problem or the solution to the problem that he saw, but he did it because he trusted in God. So let's trust the process. Let's do the little things that God has called us to do. They will lead to the answer to our prayer. That's what Abraham knew. Abraham went to a place that he didn't know and lived a life that was uncomfortable for him in a land that was not his own. As a foreshadow of what we do today, we live in a land that is not our own. Even if you were born here, you will not live here forever. You will live in a new country, a country with a foundation that is God himself, a new heaven and a new earth. So sojourn here, be a visitor, work for the good of this nation while you are here, but know that your home is somewhere else. And that's also what Sarah knew. I think as we read the text of Hebrews 11, we sometimes skip over Sarah. We're like, Noah, big story, right? The ark and everything, Abraham, the father of faith. And then we get this little line about Sarah, who believed that the son who would come to her, even though she was way past childbearing age, would be the first in a line that would lead to the Messiah. And I wonder if that's something we need to hear too, to train our children. To not just pull them through the crowd, like many of us pull them to church or pull them to Sunday school or pull them into family devotions, but to train them up. What's that going to look like? Well, it's going to look like parents, of course, working with their children regularly every day as they're in their house. But I think it also includes the rest of the family of faith here. Besides that 10% of our congregation who's under six years old, there's also a whole bunch of them who are over six and still children. They need Christian role models. They need men to look up to. who will show them what it means to be a man or the characteristics of a Christian man that those little girls should look for in a husband. They need Christian women. We're going to show those young girls what it means to live with compassion and empathy and sacrifice for other people and are going to show those young boys the value of families that are together, care for each other and love each other. You may not be one of that 68% that have children, but you can still participate in training our children up in the way that they should go. So our first practical application point from this, the way that we move forward is to train our children. To not just pull them through, but let them grow up and learn how to make it through a culture that is going sideways so that they can continue towards the cross. The statistics say that if every child born into Christian congregations would stay a Christian their entire life, the Christian church would grow even if we never brought another person into church. Isn't that powerful? Obviously, we are going to work for the salvation of those who are not yet here we've been given some really easy opportunities with our children. Let's train them up. And then secondly, let's meditate on God's word. That's what Psalm 1 told us to do, to remember these promises, to remind ourselves to trust the process, to remember the church and expect a godlike answer, or in the face of damage to our bodies or fear of government, to do the same thing. And so I wanted to quick review this idea of meditation before we finish today. I heard a great way of explaining the idea of meditation that maybe you can take home with you. You know, when you're having a conversation with somebody, like you meet somebody at church and you come in the door and there's a little bit of small talk and then somebody, one of the people, sets the tone for the conversation. They say something about the weather or Christmas or their vacation or the Blue Jays or whatever. They set the tone for the conversation and then you, as the recipient of that tone set, respond and continue the conversation going about that topic, right? It's just how normal conversation works. When you talk to God, who sets the tone for the conversation? Your conversations with God start like this. God, please help me with God. Please fix this. God, thank you for those are fine prayers. God wants you to say those prayers, but in the same way that if you had a relationship with somebody where you were always the one pushing the conversation, that wouldn't be a real relationship. That would be, well, your shrink, I suppose, uh, A real relationship with God means that sometimes he sets the tone of the conversation. That's meditation. To go to your Bible where God has written down his words for you, read those words and then say, that's the the tone set for this conversation. Why does God say that? Who does God say that to? How does he expect me to implement that? To ask those questions just like you would ask a good friend if they set the tone for a conversation. And then respond in prayer to him. That sort of meditation will change the way you see the scripture. So where are you going to start? I don't know. I suppose it's different for every one of us. I wouldn't suggest the uh, mo- method of like opening your Bible randomly and pointing to a place and saying, that's what God wants to tell me. That's first of all, foolish. And second of all, pretty close to divination. And we're not really into that. But maybe what I would suggest to you is to pick a book of the Bible and slowly read through it. Maybe you could start with Psalm five. We got you through the first four, right? Start with Psalm 5 and meditate on those words. Take time to hear God speak to you and then speak back to him. That kind of meditation will draw you closer to God and closer to the community. So let me finish with this. Fear is the desire for an appropriate relationship. I have an appropriate relationship with a Bengal tiger when it's on the other side of the plexiglass. But I don't have an appropriate relationship with a Bengal tiger when the glass is broken or there is no glass or I'm on the same side of the glass as the Bengal tiger, right? And so fear is that tension that I feel that the relationship we have is not appropriate. What are the things that you fear? Do you have an appropriate relationship with those things? Or is their role a little bit too big in your life? Are you thinking about them maybe a little bit more than you should? I'd say the way to get an appropriate relationship with whatever you fear is to ask yourself, well, what is first and foremost an appropriate relationship with God? He is the one who created these things. He is the one who redeemed me from these things. He is the one who sustains me through these things. What's an appropriate relationship with him look like? If he is the one who created you, the one who bought you back from sin, and the one who sustains you now until you go to heaven, what's an appropriate relationship with him when it comes to your time? Or to your money, or your plans, or your future, your schedule, what does that look like? I think when you find the answers to those things, and you go hear what God has to say about it in his word, you will find that the things that you fear slowly dissipate. It's hard work, brothers and sisters, but it's worth it. God has given us the resources to not be afraid of anything this world throws at us. And though we will struggle as sinners in this world, we have those promises for certain written down for us. and We should always go back to them. I pray that you are not afraid. Amen.